Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, May 21st, and we're talking about three stocks that came back. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. I'm joined by Fool.com's best boy of big bounty bounce backs, Brian Feroldi. <laughs> Brian, how you doing? Dylan, I am doing great, and we are having an exciting day in the Feraldi household because we are heading to Orlando tomorrow, but none of my kids know that. So oh, when they wow. get off the school bus today, we're going to be surprising them with, hey, guess what? Anyone want to go on vacation tomorrow? So it should be a fun day. So I am I'm not a parent, and, and I think maybe some of our listeners ha- have figured that out over time. Um, I didn't realize that this was a thing, the surprise vacation for kids, until one of our other coworkers, uh, Brian Ty, who works in tech for The Fool, said that they had a Disney vacation planned for the family, except the kids had no idea until the night before. Yep. That's exactly what we're going with. And we don't know because we've heard from other people. Sometimes it can go really well. Sometimes the kids are like so confused and disoriented. They don't know what to, to think. So, you know, fingers crossed they ha- they, they're excited. Is, is the logic there, Brian, before we get into talking about tech stocks and listeners, I promise we will, uh, is the logic there that you want to kind of keep the kids from asking you all the time about Disney World and going to Florida? Is that the idea? The logic was my wife wanted to do it, so I said, okay. <laughs> there you go. It's simple enough. Um, yeah, that's that's fun. And and that's a nice little tidbit for me to, to put in my pocket if I ever have kids. Brian, I will be checking in and seeing how that worked out for you. Yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> Speaking of checking in, uh, today on the show, we are going to be looking at three different companies um, that kind of were, were written off in different ways uh, by investors, certainly by us, um, not all of them, but I think we had each kind of picked and chose our moments with with these businesses where we're like, you know, I don't know, it really makes sense. Um, and of course, all of these businesses that we're going to be talking about have gone on to put up incredible returns for some of the more patient investors out there or folks that were willing to buy into the businesses when they were going through some of those more tumultuous periods, Brian. If you want a textbook case of why we always say, give a company a little bit of time to be on the public markets before you buy in, the companies we're going to sh- talk about today are three classic examples of why. All three of these companies came public with a lot of fanfare. All three of them were priced pretty high and peaked to trough. Early investors at one point on all three of these stocks were down more than 80% on their investment. I know that I wrote off all three of these companies as uninvestable. That was a bit of a mistake and an oversight because they have come roaring back to life. And as you said, I have been not only multi-baggers from the low, in at least two of the cases, are now beating the market since coming public. Yeah. And just, I think for us, a really good moment to take a step back, look at our own notebooks a little bit on how we've been assessing companies. There are a lot of really good teachable moments here. One of the reminders for me when I was preparing this show, Brian, is also, we tend to think of success as up and to the right. You know, uh, we, we see that, move, that, that line steadily moving in the same direction. Success actually looks like massive swings down, massive growth and acceleration afterwards. Generally, the trend line is up to the right, but there are a lot of hiccups and a lot of speed bumps along the way. Take any successful investment, anyone, name any of the biggest winners of all time. Every single one of them is down a gut-wrenching amount at some point in its life. Amazon was down, peak the trough, like 92% 
But if you had the ability to hold through that, wow, have you been rewarded. So yes, on the outside, it always looks like things are smooth and up and to the right. If you are a shareholder of any great business, you have to prepare yourself for huge volatility in both directions. Yep. Great companies will occasionally test your mettle, right? You know, if, if it's an innovative business and a disruptive company, they're probably not necessarily doing things the way that the rest of the industry is, or maybe the way the incumbents are. And with that comes some volatility. Uh, Brian, we are going to be talking about three names that I think people generally know on today's show. We're going to be talking about Upwork, we're going to be talking about Snap, and we're going to be talking about Twitter. Um, let's start with Upwork. I think probably one of the ones that most fools are most familiar with. This is uh, Upwork is a leading platform for freelancers. If you are an employer and you want to hire a freelancer, you can sign up on Upwork and get access to hundreds of thousands of skilled freelancers from around uh, the world. If you're a freelancer, it's a great platform to go to to showcase your skills and pick up extra work or even have, make it turn it into a full-time gig. When this company came public in October of 2018, uh, before we before they came public, we did a detailed breakdown uh, on the show, and there was a lot to like about this uh, business. The gig economy is growing. Uh, Upwork was the largest uh, player in the market uh, by far. It had over 375,000 freelancers uh, at the time, uh, almost half a million businesses, including 30% of the Fortune 500, and 85,000 of what it calls core clients, which are really its highest value repeat purchase uh, customers. The platform did over $1.5 billion in transactions, which is a big number in absolute terms, but just a tiny, tiny sliver of the, the total addressable market opportunity. And the financials were looking pretty good. Revenue was growing 20%. Gross margins was over 70%. It was losing money, but the net loss for the full year was about 14 million bucks. Very manageable number. And I know if I said at the time, this looks like a top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry. So I was really interested in the business. Yeah, and, and I think what's kind of interesting about Upwork in particular is, you know, we did that show and I was interested. I got uh, that first position. I didn't really wind up building it out too much because I needed to see more from the company. But uh, I think sometime after it was maybe the first six or nine months after it was publicly traded, I wound up buying in for the first time. And and the thesis was pretty simple. I mean, you you broke down the numbers here, but basically, leader in freelancing freelancing is only becoming a more and more relevant part of the employment conversation. And you're seeing a lot of very particular skills be outsourced as businesses figure out whether they need to be internal or they belong more as projects. Um, there are a lot of benefits to being able to do things around the clock, which a, a platform like Upwork allows you to do with people in different time zones. There's so much to like here. It didn't really turn into a market beating stock anytime soon, though. No, this was a company that uh, when it came public, it priced uh, appropriately. I would think uh, the price to sales ratio was completely reasonable by today's standards, around seven or eight times trailing sales. I mean, if something came public like that, we'd be like, wow, why is it so cheap uh, today? But uh, investors clearly bought into this category, this, the idea of this company uh, early. Uh, the, the stock price jumped to about $25 uh, right away. So there was a, a significant uh, one, day, one day pop. And that was pretty much the, as good as it was going to get for this company. Uh, over the next year and a half, this stock fell, peaked the trough, 80%. And if you look at why 
the the company the platform uh, was really slowing down. This company was growing in the 20ish percent range prior to coming public. That slowed to kind of the high teens range. Um, expenses were growing much faster than than revenue. So while it was nearing in on profitability prior to come public, it reversed that and its net losses were growing. And the company missed uh, on its first two earnings reports. On, on the bottom line with an investors. This is something that David Gardner has taught me to do. He says, when, when a company comes public, that first earnings report really sets the tone uh, for, for the business moving forward. So if they miss and, ha- and they start out with excuses, you can bet that there are more excuses to come. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, it's there's a lot of fanfare around the IPO and people are really excited, but at the end of the day, you got to go run a business after the party, right? You know, we you can get so excited with those things, but that's where the real work begins and that's where, you know, everything that you do is going to be publicly scrutinized because the books are available. Um, and I will say I thankfully I did not wind up one of those folks that were down 80% in my position uh, with Upwork. Uh, my basis wasn't wasn't quite that high, but I think I was still sitting at like 40% losses at one point. And it it sat collecting red in my portfolio for a long time. Yeah, and at the time, I just remember scratching my head, saying, "Like this, this, this investment thesis makes so much sense. Why isn't it working? Why is it just not working?" And I think the honest answer there was just it was a management uh, issues. If you look at the company that this, took this company public, uh, the CEO's name was uh, Stefan uh, Casriel. Uh, he was uh, the, the head of this company for, for several years, got them through the IPO process. And I just don't think he was getting the job done. And it just shows how important management is. In December of 2019, uh, the board agreed and essentially show, showed him the door. And they promoted the chief marketing officer, the chief product officer, uh, to the CEO role. Uh, her name is Hayden Brown. And you just have, I have nothing but positive things to say about this new CEO. She has done a remarkable job at reigniting this company back into a growth business. Yeah. And there's certainly a lot of growth for them there if they were able to channel all the tailwinds that are pushing this industry forward, right? There's there's so much to like. There's so much talk about side hustles right now. You have so many creatives that are taking advantage of being out of major cities. Upwork is one of those businesses that's at the nexus of that. It's nice to see that the results for them have started to turn around a little bit because you just want to see them succeed. There's a lot to love. Yeah, if you look at the most recent quarterly results, they are much more what you would expect to see from a high-growth company. So in the last quarter, their number of core clients that they have on the platform grew 46% to 152,000. As a reminder, when they came public, this number was about 86,000 uh, or, or, or so. Uh Gross uh, service volume, which is just a measure of all the, the the commerce that takes place in the platform, that grew 41%. As a result, revenue grew 37%. Gross margin ticked up a little bit to 73%. And this company reported an adjusted net profit of $4.2 million. That's a pretty remarkable turnaround. When you combine that with the fact that 2020 was definitely going to be a tailwind year for this business. It's understandable why investors have given this, have re-rated this company higher. Yeah. And and Brian, let's let's pause for a second and talk a little bit about some of the, the teachable moments here um, with this business. I think all three of the companies we're going to be talking about offer something here, both in terms of just how to look at businesses, but also from an investing process standpoint. Um, and you know, I will say it's it's been wonderful to see my shares appreciate in value and for it to become something that has basically doubled and a little bit more um, in the time that I've owned it. Um, That said, I don't really feel like I should have put more into it 
when uh, I made that first buy. It can be tempting to think that way sometimes. We're like, oh, if only I had, you know, put an extra couple thousand dollars into this stock that multi-bagged. But I look at this and I say, you know, it took a while for this business to really show that it deserved more of my money. Yeah, that's. I think that's completely fair, and I don't blame you at all uh, for for overlooking this business. When you look at the business results, the thesis for owning this thing was it's the top dog, it's the first mover, it's going to grow as the the gig economy grows. Yet its growth rate was slowing down. We've seen lots of companies come public, and that's a massive marketing event for them. And many of them use that as a tailwind to actually reaccelerate their growth. The fact that this company's strategy wasn't really working, even though it had all those tailwinds in place, shows you that the business, uh, the the stock price was following the the, the way that the business was going. So the, uh, that's one reason why I don't I don't add to businesses that are that their business uh, results are slowing down or failing because if they're trending in that direction, things can always continue to get worse, and they usually tend to. Things can always get worse, and I think we talk about it all the time. There's there's no shortage of interesting ideas out there. There are there are so many businesses that are worth your money because of the results that they're putting up, whether it's their top line, whether it's their margins. Um, We want things to generally be as easy as possible. And it's okay sometimes to look at a business and say, you know what, this should be easier than it is. And I'm having a hard time understanding why it's not coming together for them. Capital is precious. You want to invest your money in the highest quality companies that you can find. And if a company is struggling to execute against a seemingly no-brainer idea, There's a reason for that. So there's no shame with taking a pass on it. All right, Brian, the second stock we're going to talk about is one that for a long time, I just couldn't understand, couldn't wrap my head around the thesis and dogged it, honestly. I I, I talked about it uh, pretty harshly on the show and the company has gone on to put up incredible results that have proved me wrong. It took a little while to figure things out, uh, but that's Snap. And I went back and listened to some of the old shows that, that I did 2016, 2017, uh, for this business. And I, I saw the notes that I had. And it basically, the, the hangups for me was, does this thing have mainstream appeal? Are we going to hit an audience level of a Facebook or something like that? Or is it going to be one of those more niche social media platforms? Um, so how big is that user base going to get? The insistence that the company had on being a camera company rather than a social media company and really focusing on the ephemeral messaging app uh, and the the ad part of their business, which is where all the sales were coming from. That was a head scratcher for me. Um, One of the kind of lesser discussed things with the business was, are they going to be able to enjoy operating leverage? And, And for people who maybe haven't followed the company as closely, they made a very interesting choice early on to not own all of their own infrastructure. They instead partnered up with the likes of AWS um, in order to basically have a variable cost uh, rather than have the fixed cost of their own infrastructure build out. What was that going to do for their financials? Uh, and lastly, another thing I think they got they got criticized for pretty pretty fairly is they issued non-voting shares to the public. And so basically, as, as a retail investor, you didn't really have any say in what was going to be going on with that business. And you had to trust Evan Spiegel uh, and Bobby Murphy, the co-founders. And so with all of that, Brian, I looked at this business and, and said, man, they're, they're going to have an uphill battle trying to go in and convince advertisers that they should spend their money there instead of Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. My big hang up with Snap, in addition to everything that you just said, was I have a hard time seeing this as a monetizable platform just because of the very nature of the product. People go on there, they send a message, and it disappears. That was this company's shtick in, in, in the beginning. That's what made it the alternative to Facebook. I had a really hard time saying, 
How do they take that and turn that into advertising? If you look at Facebook, one of the reasons that Facebook works so well is it knows everything about you. It has all of your history right there that it, that it keeps for itself. I figure that Snap was never going to be able to match that advantage and also being a niche product that I, I also didn't agree, I didn't see the potential. To say nothing of the fact that this company has done nothing but set money on fire since it came public. I mean, burning billions of dollars every single year. You add all those things together, and I just gave this a complete no as well. Yeah, and, and to your note on the messaging side of things, even if you were to look at a like you know absolutely top-notch run social media company like Facebook, the money is coming from Facebook and from Instagram. Those are feed-based products, right? You're scrolling through, Within that feed, you have organic content and paid content. We've seen, for as good as Facebook has been in monetizing their core platform, they've had a hard time messaging, uh, getting messaging apps to something that contributes to the top line. It's, it's a totally different user experience, and it's a totally different business to monetize. That's correct. And that's one thing that you have to think through as an investor, or at least I do think for an investor, uh, is how, what is the platform? What is the way that you go from having this popular platform uh, to, to monetizing it? I just didn't see it for Snap. But they've done a good job of proving me wrong. They have. Um, they've put up multi-bagger returns for a lot of investors, especially folks that, that bought uh, in, in 2018 or so. Um, but they went public in 2017. And around that time, to kind of check in on what their audience growth looks like, they had 166 million DAUs, so daily actives globally, 75 million in North America. And with these ad-based businesses, the North American market is always going to punch above its weight class in terms of average revenue per user. Uh, today, 280 million DAUs, 93 million in North America. So there's been some growth in that, but really there's a core audience here that is being monetized. And a lot of that growth is coming internationally, which is great in terms of audience expansion, but we know that those are less lucrative markets, Brian. Yes, definitely less lucrative uh, markets, which is why, as, uh, to your point, the, U the US and North America is really the key market to focus on here. And with any social media company, there's two metrics that really matter. With any ad-based business, there's two metrics that really matter. One, user growth. You talked about the numbers. They're trending in the right direction, not as fast as some other platforms, but that is less niche of a product than I thought it was going to be. More importantly is average revenue per user. This is called ARPU, and they have made tremendous progress there. So in, uh, in 2017, uh, their ARPU, average revenue per user, was about $0.90. Cents. Last quarter... That jumps to $2.74. So that's more than a 3x growth in their revenue per user. When you combine that with the growth in, a day, in their daily average users, it's understandable why this, this company's revenue has grown at a 45% competitive growth rate over the last four years. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And I think for them, you know, what you want to see is that there's monetizable activity on the user side. What they did, and this is, this is pretty classic for the evolution of a social media platform or really anything that's trying to serve up ads in any scalable way is they had to make the decision to go from being a direct sold platform to being uh, programmatic, which means that they're opening themselves up, they're creating scale, they're allowing far more advertisers to hop into the mix. It also can wreak havoc on the actual cost for those ads. You're opening things up. That means that there's a lot more available inventory and prices tend to plummet you wind up finding growth based on volume. And this is going to become a familiar story as we're talking about Twitter later as well. But when that happens, it can be a little difficult to suss out how valuable are these ads to advertisers because you see the 
the cost of the ads generally go down. In their case, they've been able to translate it into pretty wonderful ARPU expansion and pretty pretty compelling top-line growth, Brian. And even more impressive than the top-line growth is what you teed up uh, previously. This company chose to outsource a lot of its infrastructure to a third party, in this case, uh, Amazon. At the time, I thought that that was a terrible decision because we saw Facebook building out these infrastructures everywhere. And if you want to be a global ad company, why wouldn't you want to turn that into a fixed cost that you can leverage and capture margin upside? I thought this company's gross margin was going to be fixed. And again, it was pretty low uh, when, when, they came, uh, when they came public in 2017. Their gross margin was 18%. I mean, that is not impressive at all. Um, However, they've done a pretty good job of leveraging their, their, their cost structure. And if you look at their gross margin now, given all the revenue growth that they've had, it actually sits in the low 50th percent range. That's a massive difference over a few years. It is. That's, that's a huge difference. And it opens up a lot of things. I mean, when you get that kind of growth, you get people excited. It gives you the opportunity to invest a little bit differently. Um, and people have caught on to the operating leverage story, the revenue growth story, and that, that Kager is going to catch eyes, right? It's just going to. It's, it's impressive. Um, they are about a triple from where they were pre-pandemic. And if you get down to the depths of, of 2020, they're a five-bagger, which is darn, darn impressive for a company that was, I think, trading down around $5 a share uh, at some point in the last couple of years. And I think a lot of people had kind of written them off as an also-ran social media business. A big, big part of this is on top of all of these things that we're talking about where they've they've been able to continue engaging the core people that really like the platform. They have seen ad prices work in their favor. And I'm going to pull this uh, from, from company management. For the first time as a public company, we observed a rise in overall eCPM in Q3, driven by a combination of mix shift towards higher eCPM products, such as commercials, as well as the rapid rise in overall demand. Uh, average eCPMs increased 20% year over year. However, we believe eCPMs remain well below market rates for our audiences and our ad units. And I think one of the, one of the hard things about the digital ad market, Brian, is the narrative can kind of be twisted to however the company wants to position it. Because if ad rates are low, they're able to tell this story of, well, we're offering advertisers really excellent ROI opportunities, right? The, the cost for beginning a relationship with us as an advertiser is so cheap. It's low risk. It's accessible. That's wonderful. It also means that it, perhaps the ads aren't that effective. So you want to see prices increasing over time because it means that when people are making their advertising decisions out there in the digital media landscape, they're seeing compelling offerings across platforms and that whatever you are giving them in terms of audience exposure is worth their dollar because those are zero-sum dollars. It's a tightrope that the company has to walk. To your point, they're trying to serve their own interests as well as the interests of their advertising partners. But the fact that management says that they believe that their rates are still dramatically under what uh, what they, they, they could be charging, uh, that is a really bullish sign for this company uh, moving forward. And again, it's not, this isn't going to be a perfect comparison, but it's going to be an okay one. In the first quarter, Facebook's worldwide average average revenue per user was $9.27. There's a lot of room between $2.90 and $9.30. And also, Facebook's ARPU is still rising. They've really mastered that art of giving advertisers a tremendous ROI while they're increasing their ARPU. Can Snapchat do the same thing? I don't know. 
Yeah, it's encouraging to see them moving in the right direction. And then that quote was from uh, earlier in 2020, which is when we really start to see liftoff with that business and with the share price. Um, and that's huge because it, you have two levers, really, Brian, as an ad-based business. You have the number of ads you can show, and that's generally going to be uh, a function of the number of users you have and the amount of time they spend on the platform. And then you're going to have the amount you charge for your ads. And so you put those two together in terms of their growth movements, that's basically going to give you your top line if 90 plus percent of your revenue is coming from ads. And so you can achieve growth if one of those is growing. But like we say with our software as a service players, it's great if you can get your existing customers to spend more and bring new customers in. If you find two levers for growth, it can really magnify what you're doing. And that's what we want to see with the best ad-based businesses is let's see impression growth and then let's also see prices move so that you get that multiplier effect. That's a magic combination. And I'm looking at the uh, revenue estimates for this company over the next couple of years. From what it seems like, Wall Street buys that narrative. They're expecting essentially 55% revenue growth this year, followed by 48% revenue growth next year. So that is some high expectations, but Wall Street believes that ad prices uh, and ad impressions are both heading higher. Yeah, and what's what's really interesting about that is I was doing some reading and CEO Evan Spiegel said that the 50% annual top line growth rate that they're throwing out there is not predicated on further user growth or engagement growth. So this is them saying we are going to be able to grow dramatically based on ad dynamics, inventory and pricing. If we're able to get anything else like if we see a step change in adoption because we kind of cross over uh, into a new demographic or a new audience, that's just gravy. That's incredible if that's true. <laughs> and if, again, that's true, it makes sense why this stock has bounced back from the doldrums and is currently trading at 28 times sales. Clearly, he's done a good job about getting that messaging across to Wall Street, and Wall Street believes it. Yeah, I, I do think the one thing that I'm like still kind of, I don't know if I buy it with this business is the camera ambitions. And and it has been something that has, I think, plagued me and kind of tainted the company for a while. Um, and, and actually, they're in the news again today with updates related to their focus here. Uh, reports came out that Snap is buying Wave Optics, which is the supplier of their AR displays uh, for their next-gen spectacles glasses. They're paying $500 million for this acquisition. And I think the hardware ambitions for Snap have been a very polarizing part of this company's story for a long time, Brian, because we, we spend a lot of time talking about the tech space and interesting investments. Very, very rarely do we spend time talking about hardware manufacturers. It's just not a great business to be in, unless you're Apple, essentially. Uh, it, it's really hard to sell hardware products well and come up with one uh, that consumers really want to buy and then create lock-in uh, for them. All of Snap's attempts to enter that market so far have been lackluster, I guess we could say it at best. However, I actually give this company credit for really sticking to that vision because I, for one, believe that eventually someone is going to nail the AR angle. And it's possible that if those, things, if those glasses do go mainstream, they could be the replacement for the phone. They could be the next computing platform, the same way that the smartphone took over the, the, uh, the dumb phone uh, industry. If that happens, if you can become the brand name uh, in, in that market, that gives you an incredibly strong competitive position. 
Now, Snap is going to have plenty of competitors. And right now, to my eyes, Facebook is actually the leader here with its uh, Oculus's product. But it's still so early that if somebody does come out with a killer product, they could be the leader. Yeah. And I think where we're at now with Snap and their journey with hardware, it's it's a little bit clearer to me what management's trying to do and maybe how it might be viable down the road. Because, you know, you, you go back a couple of years and the way that people tend to th- think about the hardware business for them was the consumer facing spectacles, which looked uh, an awful lot like, you know, brightly colored plastic uh, glasses, kind of cheapo glasses that have been upgraded with, uh, you know, with a camera and, and some tech uh, gadgetry. Um, those were consumer facing. They were really splashily sold in these vending machines. Like it was really wonderful consumer branding, but I think a lot of people were like, how many people are going to pay, you know, $150, for these things? It, it doesn't seem like there's a big market here. Why are we spending so much time with this? What we're seeing them do this time around is kind of fix their strategy and do something a little bit different. They're not selling these 4.0 spectacles. They're instead giving them to AR effects creators. And it, it's it's a different way to, I think, engage an ecosystem. I think the idea is they want people to create a lot of stuff for space and then possibly get it in front of consumers down the line. And Snap CEO Evan Spiegel has said it will take roughly a decade before AR glasses become compelling enough for mass adoption, like the way they are currently for mobile phones, that that style of adoption that we see. So that to me says, okay, this is a longer term bet. I'm still not necessarily sold on it, but I think it makes way more sense to position any efforts that way than it does for it to be what feels like kind of a cheaply made mass consumer product with pretty limited functionality. That strategy seems to make sense to to me too. And I don't know how, I mean, he would know better than me, but a decade seems like a really long time. The nice thing for investors is that we can wait for the company to prove that out before we jump in. If you got interested in Apple five years after the iPhone was clearly the dominant platform, you still made a ton of money. So it's still so early that we can really let these companies jock it out, wait till one of them wins, and then buy it. And like we say all the time, you you trade upside for certainty, and there are a lot of times where you're happy to do that, right? Because it's it's nicer to have a little bit more conviction here. Um, and and so I mean I'm I'm pretty darn impressed with what we've seen uh, from uh, from from sorry from Snap. Honestly, like it reminds me a little bit of the narrative with Pinterest. Um, it's it's hard not to compare the two uh, because I think both platforms were kind of in spots, Brian, where they had an audience and it was really just a matter of like, are they going to be able to monetize it? Both of them for how big their audiences really were um, when they started monetization efforts, they were pretty late to the game in making a lot of money off of the people that were using their platform. Yeah, that's a similar narrative. By the way, the exact same narrative came out when Facebook came public. You remember how people were saying, this is a desktop product. It will never make the leap to mobile and uh, Facebook stock fell Geez, probably probably seventy five percent after it came public. Pinterest uh, in the depths of uh, you know in March of twenty twenty, that stock was down probably seventy percent. So a lot of these companies really get uh, beaten down by the by the narrative out of the gate. But if they can prove that they can do what they say they're going to do, uh, that can actually prove to be a pretty pretty great time to get in. So the last company we're going to be talking about is Twitter. And I think there are probably a lot of parallels here with the Snap story, particularly as we get into ad dynamics. It's another social media company, ad-based in terms of how almost all the revenue comes in. They've got a licensing business, but that's not really what's driving the ship. And you go back to about 2017, 
my take on this business, Brian, is basically you have a core group of dedicated users. How big can this be? Like, I think at a certain point, you're going to be trying to juice the same fruit over and over again. And like, how much is really going to be there? And is that something that can sustainably grow over time? That's really what you want for a business. Um, and what we had with Twitter was a really in-depth picture of their ad rates and the ad dynamics that played into their revenue. And it was pretty rough. I mean, the, the business was the poster child for making it up on volume because they were posting triple-digit year-over-year growth in the engagements, but massive double-digit declines in the cost per engagement on their ads. Yeah, to your point, you have a great table here that we're looking at showing that in Q1 2016, they more than tripled the number of ads that they showed on their platform, but the cost that they got per ad dropped 56%. When you combine those things together, it actually shook out to revenue only growing 37%. Now, revenue growth of 37% isn't bad. That's not bad in, in absolute terms, but wouldn't it be wonderful if their ad impressions were just staying flat and they and they were able to triple the number of impressions. So yeah, it's tough to grow when that when the ad uh, costs are swimming so hard against you. It is. And and even in a quarter where they posted 139% engagement growth, they posted 63% declines in the price for those engagements. That translated into a loss of, of 10% year over year, which, which just shows you how important advertisers finding the platform valuable and bidding up your ad prices really are for this space. Given what you just said, that ad, the number of ad impressions were essentially up triple digit, yet the total revenue of this company was down year over year, it makes complete sense why investors were caught off guard about this business and why shareholders just gave up. Another thing that was really working against this company was the valuation. This IPO received the same fanfare as like Facebook. I mean, it was on that level because the platform was so ubiquitous and so many people at the time were saying, this has got to be the next, this has got to be the next uh, Facebook. When they came public, they priced it 40 times sales. And that was in 2013. So that was a extremely high valuation that was pricing in a tremendous amount of growth. Believe it or not, just a few months later, the stock was actually a winner right out of the gate, and they were trading at over 60 times sales. When you are trading that high, Wall Street is clearly pricing in 50% plus revenue growth. If you can't produce that, look out below. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, we just didn't see it. I mean, by the time we got towards the tail end of 2016, we were down to the single digits in year-over-year growth, and and things turned negative uh, at the end of that year and into early 2017. And that that's gonna change the narrative around a high-growth stock. It just is. I mean, people if they're if they're paying a premium for shares, they want to see those growth rates. Um, that's a, that's a big part of the story. And when you factor in that, you know, at a certain point, they're they're running into those user issues that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, you, you know, you don't have that same potential growth in the future. You're you're kind of stuck working with what you currently have, and people are going to focus a lot more on that. Yep, for for sure. Now the situation got so bad, Dylan, that a few years after this company coming public, uh, its CEO, who at the time of the IPO was uh, was Dick Costello, he was actually shown the door in 2015. And I know that with the stock price down that much, a lot of the employees at Twitter were 
unbelievably far underwater with their options. And that's not a great thing when you are trying to recruit talent and keep talent that you have happy, because this company is located in the heart of Silicon Valley. And if you're an engineer that's good enough to work at Twitter, you can pretty much pick a job anywhere you want. So options are a major way that a lot of employees look to to monetize their, their, their career. So that was a huge problem. After Costello was shown the door, Jack Dorsey, the founder, came back in and he made a number of moves right out of the gate uh, that really uh, flipped that narrative around. First, he focused on cutting costs because at the time, Twitter was losing tremendous amounts of money. The other notable thing that he did was Jack Dorsey actually took one third of the personal stock that he owned in Twitter and he gave that to the employees. That was actually about 1% of the business at the time. I can't think of any other CEO ever that has taken their personal stock in a company and given it to employees. That is an impressive move. Yeah, I, I like that right there, like that last two minutes, Brian, because it's it's a couple things that we don't spend a lot of time talking about when it comes to the success of a business, the valuation of a business over time and and the effects that it has. But brain drain is real. And if if you are in a highly competitive space, and I, I think anyone would say that social media is a highly competitive space, uh, engineering talent is at a premium. They, the folks that are really talented have a lot of options, potential landing spots. You got to have a pretty sweet deal in order to be attractive for that talent. Um, and it immediately makes you look weaker if you're giving people underwater options or underwater grants. Uh, they're, they're just not going to be interested in it. Um, and that story about Dorsey, I mean, w- the incredible buy-in that that must have created from Twitter employees. I think that is, we, we talk about skin in the game being owning the stock. I think that giving your stock away to employees might be the ultimate skin in the game move. really does. Does anything say, I'm here, I understand, I'm listening to you here, have, have my personal, that's probably a billion dollars uh, at the time, maybe, maybe less, but nonetheless, a ton of money that he just gave out to people that already worked for him. Uh, nothing says, I am committed to you, I hear your complaints, and I'm here for the long term like that. Yeah. And you know the business has turned it around. Uh, they are they are a much healthier looking business uh, than they were a little while ago. Um, one one grievance that I do have with them is we've moved away from getting the reporting on what's going on with their ad impressions and what's going on with their cost per engagement. And given that that was a a trouble area for me for this business and one of the main concerns I had, I was frustrated to see them move away from reporting that. In 2018, I, I felt like that was a mistake on their part, and that that killed my confidence in in management because it's like, if if I see that this is a glaring issue and you're not going to give me the inputs anymore, I I don't there's no called strikes. I don't need to be here. You know, uh, I'm I'm not going to be buying shares. What they did instead was they they started focusing a lot more on monetizable daily active usage. And Brian, I think this is interesting. It's more of an an opportunity gauge for them because. It's monetizable usage. It's it's not necessarily usage that has been monetized. You know, it's a different way to to look at it. And when management starts to get creative by inventing their own metrics and saying, "Hey, look at this," uh, your spidey senses should start to go up. In Jack Dorsey's case, I think he deserves the benefit of the doubt, given what he has done to really turn around the business. And more importantly, it's focusing on the things that really matter for investors. What's revenue done since he has taken over? The answer there is it's done good things. 
Over the last couple of years, the company went from declining and negative revenue growth rates to accelerating uh, revenue growth rates. Uh, it's It was negative 19% a few years ago. It was 28% uh, last year. Margins have also been holding up pretty well. They're still in the in the 60th percent range, but when you when you go off of a much higher revenue base, this company is much closer to profits on a gap basis and on an adjusted basis. It's actually already there. That's a huge turnaround. Yeah, and and Brian, to your point on on the Spidey senses, uh, this is this is one where you know a lot of shareholders you know uh, bought Twitter down in the teens and are sitting pretty happy right now with with where the stock is you know sitting on multi-bagger returns um this is one where i you know i wasn't right but i trusted my own process and and i feel good about the check-in there of this doesn't make sense to me i i I gotta i gotta keep it in a spot where i'm maybe following it but following it more for information than i am because i'm actively interested in investing in it um those moments are okay you know they, they happen but I think what we're looking at is a, is a healthier business now. We're still seeing revenue growth fluctuate a little bit. There have been periods even in the last year or so where on a quarterly basis we're seeing declines um, and some swings You know, from them being in the teens in growth to being in the 20s for growth. Um, their margins are down a little bit from highs, um, but I think all in all, they've proven there's viable business here. Yeah, this this is definitely a much stronger business today. And uh, as a Twitter addict myself, one frustrating thing about using this platform is it seems like this is the exact same platform today that it was eight years ago. I mean, what has been innovated on this platform? There's, there's almost been nothing uh, for, for many, many years. However, over the last six months to a year, they really seem to have, have, have beefed up their, their innovations. Uh, just within the last six months, they've announced some potential new products, I guess I should say, including super following which is when you gives uh, gives somebody with a big audience a chance to earn revenue uh, from their followers. There's something called Twitter Blue in the works, which is the ability to peg a few dollars per month, and then you get extra Twitter feeder features, including an edit button. So if you have a spelling mistake on your, your, um, your tweet, you can go in and edit it after the fact. They've also rolled out things like Twitter Spaces, which if you've ever heard of Clubhouse, is very similar to that, except for it's seamless to use because it operates right in Twitter. Twitter. And they've also bought and launched a newsletter business similar to Substack. So if you want to turn your Twitter following into a uh, monetizable newsletter, you can do that easy. Those kind of things open up revenue opportunities or potentially open up revenue opportunities that I could really see working out for for this company, much more so than the ad-based business that this is. If they can make those work, I think this company has a bright future ahead. Yeah, Brian, I think the digital natives that are listening to this podcast are like, yeah, this makes a ton of sense. Like, you know, if you spend any time online, you're noticing that there are a lot more, uh, I'll say influencers, but also I think creatives and uh, thought leaders, you know, people that command uh, an online following who are realizing I can kind of go solo on this if I want to. And I can build a business that, that supports me be independent and be able to run my own newsletter that I monetize via uh, whether it's affiliates or ads or upsells, that kinds of thing. Um, Given that Twitter is one of the biggest platforms for those types of people, it only makes sense that they layer this stuff in. It's kind of tough though that, at least from my perspective, it seems like they're catching up to where other people in the industry are going rather than leading that change themselves. 
yeah, these are innovations that you kind of smack them in the head and say, why didn't you do this five years ago? Like that would have been a great time to start to roll this out. And I heard, have heard people like Jason Moser say, I'm not paying a penny to use Twitter because I just wouldn't get any kind of value out of it. I might be the wrong person to ask about that because I'm on Twitter so much. So it will be interesting to see, can they get their users who have been using this platform for free for years to consider spending on the platform? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And I mean, it gets to, you know, the original design of the internet, right? Where we, we kind of as consumers made the decision early that we weren't paying for stuff. And now we're figuring out, okay, like how do, well, how do we support these things if we don't want to do ads? Because someone, someone's got to pay the bill at some point. It's nice to see that they're creating these options. It makes their It makes their offering so much stronger. And Brian, I think crucially with this type of stuff, it keeps people with large followings on platform. Because we have seen, you know, like generally, if, if you're thinking about folks who have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of followers on, on various platforms, they tend to be pretty ubiquitous in their omni-channel and how they approach things. But you also see a lot of platforms out there creating kind of sweetheart deals for creators to bring them over. And if you see that there's more activity, more engagement on some of the more nascent platforms out there, um, you could see people possibly losing interest in being on Twitter and that is a competitive risk for them. It certainly is, and it is something. If they started to make it, if they started to make Twitter monetizable, if you are someone again with a big following, that could really bring a lot of people to the platform and make the platform even better. I could also see them just rolling out a hey, spend ninety nine cents a month or dollar or two dollars, a few dollars a month, and we'll remove ads from your feed and give you some extra features. That I could see being a compelling offering the same way that people are used to watching YouTube videos for free, but some people do choose to upgrade to an ad-free model. I myself did that uh, uh, just over a year ago and I'm now kicking myself like, why did I do that earlier? Because I watch so much, my family watches so much YouTube, it's worth the few dollars a month we pay to just get the ads off the platform. Yeah, I mean, just just think about that. A couple dollars a month—that would be one video rental uh, ten years ago. You know, it, it's 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 a no-brainer from a from a consumer standpoint. Well, not every consumer can f- afford that, and some don't use it enough to really get the usage out of it. But I could see, given that this company has hundreds of millions of users, even if a small percentage of them turn that into paying user, that could turn out to be a meaningful business for this company. All right, Brian. As we wrap here, three companies. I think all of them have have proven us at various points wrong, uh, proven a lot of investors wrong, and gone on to put up some pretty great returns for people that bought into the thesis, stuck around, and maybe even added to the position during some of those depths. Which one of these three would you be most interested in owning? At the start, before before I really thought about things, I thought that my answer was going to be Twitter. Because again, I myself am a huge user of Twitter and I really see the appeal of the platform now much more so than even I did two years ago. And given all the potential that the business has, I think Twitter is going to be a market beater from here. But given these three choices, I got to go with Upwork. If for no other reason than Twitter market cap, $45 billion, Upwork, 5 so there is, I think, a lot of room for the, uh, for the gig economy to, to grow. And starting from a base of just $5 billion, even though the stock has already been a winner, I could easily see that being a multi-bagger from here. You? You know, I have to agree with you in part because I own Upwork and I don't own the other two. So it would, it would really be an indictment of how quickly I move through my portfolio and whether uh, you know, the, the way I'm feeling is updated and what I own uh, if I didn't say Upwork. And, and I think a part of it for me is it is easiest to see me uh, to, for me to see them succeeding in the future 
and you know there are there are other players in that market for sure. Um, they are maybe not the leader that they once were, but it's it's a market where I think multiple players can survive and thrive. Um, I will say, I am darn impressed with what Snap's done. I think a lot of things still have to go right, but when I see them talking about fifty percent year over year growth for this year, possibly next year, um, and that's without a lot of base assumptions around audience growth and engagement. That starts to look really interesting. You pointed out, Brian, that there's a lot of room for that ARPU to grow over time. Um, I have some hesitations because it's a little bit of a bigger company. I think it's about an $87 billion business at this point. Um, but I'm I'm pretty darn impressed with that team. And I, I feel like I learned a lot following this company over the last couple of years. They've done a fabulous job with the turnaround and the business is light years ahead uh, today where it was a few years ago. And if these growth rates are to be believed, I could also see Snap being a market beater from here. But to your point about what you just said, this is a $90 billion company. Twitter's a $45 billion company. Based on that alone, I would personally rather bet on Twitter. Yep. And that's the beauty of it, Brian. We, we can agree to disagree, as we did when we first talked about Upwork, uh, and you took DocuSign, and I took Upwork. <laughs> Should we have another bet, Dylan, going off of today? Twitter versus Snap? I'm taking Twitter. Twitter. Snap. You're I'll taking take snap. snap. All right. If, if but, we're doing, what do you want to say, three years? Three years. Yeah, I'll yes. take Snap on three years. Okay. Um, I don't know if either of them are going to thump the market. We'll see, because those, those are some big growth rates uh, to live up to. But I like that bet. That's a good one. Sounds great to me. All right, Brian, as always, fun to talk to you on Fridays. It's always the highlight of my week. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. That's where we are. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Fool on.